G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. We come to the Ten Commandments, but you're never truly going to understand them or even embrace them until you get this whole thing about God as a loving father, not the big bad cosmic boss, who desperately wants you to live within these parameters because in this given created scenario, you live within these parameters, you're going to get the best chance for good living. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hi and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Fines. My name is Bill. Thanks for joining me. In this episode, we're talking about stealing or the commandment, thou shall not steal. Pastor Jeff is in his series called Ways to Freedom, looking at the Ten Commandments. In this message, he'll remind us that stealing can take many forms. Join me now in Exodus chapter 20 as we begin the message. a series called Ways to Freedom, and it's based on the Ten Commandments. But what uh, most people don't know is that God first went to the Egyptians and asked them if they wanted a commandment. And they said, what's that? And God gave them an example, thou shalt not commit adultery. And they said, no thanks, that would ruin our weekends. (laughs) God then went to the Assyrians and asked them if they wanted a commandment. And they said, well, give us an example. He said, thou shalt not steal. And the Assyrians said, no thanks, that will ruin our economy. And then God went to the Jews and asked them if they wanted a commandment. They said, how much? What's the cost? God said, it's free. They said, we'll take 10. So that's how it all happened. (laughs) Come on, man. I can make fun of myself. I can make fun of everybody else. I was reading an article in Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest. What if the Ten Commandments, what if God had texted the Ten Commandments to Moses? That looks something like this. Number one, no one before me, seriously. (laughs) Don't worship idols or pictures of yourself, Facebook people. No OMGs. (laughs) Don't take the Lord's name in vain. No work on weekend, Saturday for now, Sunday later. All right, you know how that goes if you know anything about the Bible. How about this one? Parents over shoulder, okay. Your mom and dad are cool. Honor mom and dad. Don't kill people. (laughs) Anybody know this one? Big wet kisses only with your mate. That's talking about adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie, especially to your best friend. Don't ogle your best friend's mate or ox or donkey. Mind your own business. (laughs) Now, I had to really ask some of the younger guys what that stuff meant, and it took me a while. I feel much more comfortable with the Hillbilly Ten Commandments. Hillbilly Ten Commandments go like this. Ain't but one God. Honor your mom, and pa. No telling tells or gossiping. Get your hide to Sunday meeting. Ain't nothing come before the Lord. No fooling around with another feller's gal. 
No killing except for critters. <laughs> Quit your foul mouthing. Don't swap in your kinfolk stuff. Don't be a hankering for it, neither. I like that stuff. That's a language I can understand. <laughs> so we come to the Ten Commandments, but you're never truly going to understand them or even embrace them until you get this whole thing about God as a loving father, not the big bad cosmic boss, who desperately wants you to live within these parameters because in this given created scenario, you live within these parameters, you're going to get the best chance for good living. I mean, the world's going to throw a couple of curveballs at you, yes, but if you get outside these parameters, think about it. If God did create everything, then he knows best how you can operate in it. He created the world and he created you. You were hardwired to live a certain way. You get out of that hardwiring, there's a short circuit, disintegration starts, not only in community and environment and society, but in the deepest parts of your soul. But it, there has to come a time in your life when you actually begin to trust God, that he has your best interest in mind. We said that God wants to prevent the disintegration of the individual and society, so he gives us his ways, W-A-Z-E, the roadmap to live life. Now, I want to take a look at theft. Thou shalt not steal. I want to do it from two angles, the angle of society and impact on the individual and what that means for your life. The first part, the, the impact of theft on our society is easily seen. The World Economic Forum tells us that corruption is now 5% of global GDP, that the cost of bribes each year is $1 trillion, internet theft costs the consumer $1 million a year, and most of us have no idea about the amount of money that goes toward things like burglar alarms or insurance costs or theft prevention. You have no idea how many of your tax dollars actually goes to policing theft and thieves. Or have you ever considered the reason you have to pay such a high price for consumer goods, especially at the supermarket, is because the owners have to somehow make up for their inability to stop shoplifters. Somebody ultimately is going to pay, and it's usually you and me. So when you look at blue-collar crime, uh, it's easily seen, easily, easily quantified. Somebody breaks into your house, somebody enters... Uh, your domain, they steal your car, they steal your stereo, your baseball card collection, your ATM. By the way, one of the reasons you feel so violated when somebody breaks in and steals something that belongs to you is not just because you've lost something that belonged to you, but the Bible tells you that God hard, hardwired into you this desire uh, to earn, to work, and then this kind of keeping sense that you have. that This is what God has sent my way, so I am the caretaker of this. When somebody steals something from you, they've taken something from you over which God's given you the authority to take care of. And so there's some kind of a, a internal uh, disintegration when somebody violates you in that way. Again, blue-collar crime is easily seen. Imagine a pastor of a church in San Dimas, California, who parks his car out on the street because he's up in the office working late at night. Somebody comes and steals his golf clubs. <laughs> I mean, Matthew 12 says that's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for which there's no forgiveness. <laughs> Doesn't really say that, but... We feel violated when somebody takes something that belongs to us. Blue-collar stealing, yes. White-collar stealing is not so easily recognized, and yet that's really what's disintegrating society. The reason the fabric of our society uh, is disintegrating is because of things like theft of time. 
when an employee does not give his or her best work to the employer. When you're not giving the employer a good value for his or her money. I learned this the hard way. Uh, I told my dad, I'm 16 years old, I want a car. He said, fine, you think you deserve a car at 16? I said, yeah, I can drive now. State of Tennessee says I can drive, so I need a car. He says, okay, you meet me down here at 5.30 in the morning, we'll go get your car. I woke up early, met him down in the driveway at 5.30. He took me down to White Supermarket and introduced me to the produce manager. He said, this is how you're gonna get your car. You're gonna work for it. You're gonna earn money, then you can buy your car. So I took the job. About two months into that job, I was standing out in the parking lot chatting up a young girl, which is what you do when you're 16, to try to get a date. And the manager came to me. He knew I was a Christ follower. And he said, Jeff, why are you stealing from me? I said, well, I haven't taken, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I'm paying you to work. And rather than inside working, you're out here talking to this girl. You're stealing from me. That was a very eye-opening experience for me that I was getting paid for services and I was not rendering. You know, the Bible talks about this a lot. My friend Clive Rye Rui and I were in Auckland, New Zealand uh, last year, and we were on American time. So we go to this cafe. The cafe is not opening until 6 a.m. It's like 5.55, but it's cold outside. We don't want to stand and wait. And she had the door open. So my friend walks in and says to the, the lady behind the, the barista, says, you mind if we come in for a while? It's just three minutes till you open it and it's cold outside. Man, she was extremely rude to us. And what did we do? We left. We went to another cafe. Now, she didn't lose anything because she's not the owner. She just stole money from the owner. And if she does that all the time, she's costing the owner money all the time. He, probably does, he or she probably doesn't know it. That's, the Bible calls that theft. When you don't do good work, period. When you create a product that doesn't do what you promised it would deliver. When you work at a job to get a paycheck, but your heart's not in it. You're just there for the paycheck, but you have a cavalier attitude about work and about productivity. In fact, the apostle Paul tells the Christians in Colossae, in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So Christ followers are supposed to, to be a light in a world, to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. They're supposed to be model citizens. They're supposed to never steal from the people who employ them. You say, well, they don't pay me enough to get another job. It's not right because you think somebody doesn't pay you enough to steal from them. It's called stealing. There are other ways to steal. Don't pay your taxes. Don't pay your debts. Pad your expense account at work. Manipulate your logbook so that it appears you drove more miles than you actually did for the company. Or if you work for a company you know is involved in wholesale stealing. Uh, one of my favorite movies is based on the novel by John Grisham, Rainmaker. Two of my favorite actors, Matt Damon, John Voight. The movie is based on a true story in Memphis, Tennessee of a company called Great Benefit Insurance Company, and they have a policy. And the policy is this, when anyone makes a claim, categorically deny it routinely, even if, it's, even if, if they deserve to file a claim and deserve the income, refuse it right up front. And the reason is given because hopefully they'll give up thinking that they don't have a valid claim or that maybe they'll get tired and just go away, tired of fighting, or maybe they'll just forget all about it. One of the young women who's employed by Great Benefit asked the question, why are we doing that? The response of the company was, it's good business. It might be, but it's still stealing. And in the movie, a young man, Donnie Ray, actually died unnecessarily of leukemia, waiting for the approval of the insurance companies to begin his treatments. He could have lived. Lewis Smedes, one of my favorite authors, says this, we know, you and I, when a thug snatches a woman's purse, he's stealing. 
We're not sure whether a creative ad writer who woos money from people with smooth and seductive lies is stealing, but he is. We know when an embezzler steals from a bank and falsifies computer data, he's stealing, but we are not sure whether or not a corporation that bribes an official to get a deal without the lowest bid is stealing, but it is. He goes on to say that we know that when somebody breaks into your house and takes your television, he's stealing, but we're not sure a company is stealing when it exploits a poor country's resources, but it is. He finishes by saying, one yearns for the day when a thief is not an executive in a suit. Okay, Pastor Jeff, I got you. But what about, what about the impact of theft on the individual? Now, listen. When I start on Monday writing a sermon, I never know where it's going to take me. I set out with a general text and theme. I knew this week it was thou shalt not steal. That's about all I knew. So wherever my study and cross-reference and scripture takes me, that's where the sermon goes. I learn something every week. I've been doing this a long time, and every week, you can always tell by my passion. If I just go through the motions, I already knew it, and I'm re- just, re- just regurgitating it. But if I learn something this week, the more new information, the more I learn about Scripture and about God's Word, then I get ex- all excited about it. And then I come to you with, man, look at this. doesn't mean I have it in order, and it doesn't even mean I'm not violating it in my own life. It just means, man, I'm convicted. Well, this is one of those weeks. Because the Apostle Paul reformulates the commandment, thou shalt not steal, in the New Testament, in Ephesians 4. This is eye-opening. He says this, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So do you hear what he's saying? Paul assumes that everything you have comes from God. He assumes that you have the choice whether to work and earn and become a caretaker of a larger amount of resources that God would bless you with, or that you can be lazy and not work at all. I know there's a lot in between. Let's just stick with those right now. He says, once you acknowledge that you are to work, your primary motivation, your primary motivation for working and earning is not to spend it on yourself, but to give it away. He assumes that you know life is temporary. It's all going to burn, go to custard anyway. So the investment of your life, the reason you work, the reason you earn is not to have bigger houses and nicer cars. It's to first take care of your family. And after you have your needs met, not necessarily all your wants and desires, but your needs met, then your attitude is one of radical generosity. This is amazing if you think about it. The first four commandments, and we have to keep doing this in the series, the first four are concerned with the way you and I relate to God. The second six are concerned with how we relate to each other. But the first four are the basis to the second six. So every single one of these commands, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt honor parents, thou shalt not kill, are all based on the assumption that your relationship is right with God, that you know you've been created in his image. Therefore, Once you learn about God, it's going to impact the way that you treat others. If you don't have it settled in your mind who God is and who you are, you have little to no chance in treating others the way God expects you to treat others. Now, stay with me for a moment here. Retired pastor Tim Keller tells a story of a great meeting that took place in Glasgow, Scotland. As the mayor of the city, he addresses the priests and pastors, okay, of Scotland, And here's what he said as he looked out over the crowd of priests and pastors from all denominations, Catholic, Protestant. He said, you guys spend a lot of time debating theology and the nature of God and the nature of man and these deep ideas and concepts that most people can't understand. 
But what people really need from you is not more debate on the discourse concerning the nature of God and the doctrine of God, the nature of man. What we really need from you, he says, can you help us to love our neighbor? Can you help us to get along, to treat each other with kindness and respect? That's what we're looking for from the church. Now, this statement could be on any opinion poll in the United States and any place in the West. Here's what we're being told. Here's what guys like me are being told all the time in our meetings. We don't care what you believe about God. We don't care what you believe about man. We don't care what you believe about the Bible. We just want you to help us with social problems. Really doesn't matter about what you believe in all those other things. Just help us respect each other, show kindness, maintain integrity, forgive each other, and love our neighbor as ourselves. So to the modern man, first four commandments don't really mean anything. Love God, serve God, no other idols, no other gods, no taking God's name in vain, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. For them, those four are just kind of incidental. But the second six are the, really the ones that matter. Now, do you see the irony yet? Okay, thank you. <laughs> they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, Jesus responded in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus takes 637 precepts in the Old Testament and narrows them down to two. Love God and love your neighbor. What's the point? You can't love your neighbor till you love God. You can't be in a right relationship here horizontally until you're in the right one vertically. Because until you understand what it is that God actually did for you, there's no way that you're going to treat others with dignity and respect and you're going to fight racism and discrimination. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have moments in your life when you do that, but it won't be the posture of your life. When Paul wanted to motivate the fellow Christians in Jerusalem and Macedonia to give to those who were hurting, what was his motivation? He recapitulated the gospel in 2 Corinthians 8. He said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that through his poverty might become rich. So what's Paul's argument? The only way I can get you to help people, for those of you who have resources to help those who are in need, is to remind you what God did for you. He was rich, and in his wealth, he became poor, so that in his poverty, you would become rich. Until you understand truly that God did that for you, you're not going to do that for anybody else. The problem in our country, folks, the only hope truly for America is Jesus, really, is Jesus. Because until you've had your heart transformed by him, there's no way that you ever have hope of not just stepping on everybody to get ultimately what it is that you want. Here's the problem. If I meant this, just humor me for a second and then I'll finish. Okay, just for a second. I would like to meet the mayor. And I would say, Mr. Mayor, on what basis should I treat people with respect and kindness? On what, where's your ultimate point of reference? Mr. Mayor, you don't believe in God. So your worldview is incoherent. You don't believe in God, yet you want me to treat people with dignity and respect. Wait a minute, if there's no God, if there's no God, and you and I are here and there were, there were oceans and oceans of time before us, and there will be oceans and oceans of time after us, why shouldn't I step on everybody to get what I want? Why not? I mean, make, that, that to me would be more logical, right? If there's no day of accountability and there's no, and there's no ultimate purpose or meaning to our lives, we're just a bunch of chemicals, why would I be nice to anybody? Now, stay with me here. Somebody will come to me and I get this complaint all the time. Pastor Jeff, you should, treat, you should talk more about the environment. 
And I always like to enter into this little dialogue. First of all, I agree that we need to treat the environment better. But they will say, you should treat the environment well. And I will say, why? Why? I just want to get everything out of it that I can. Just to play devil's advocate. And they'll say, well, you, you should leave it in good shape for the next generation. And my response is, well, what if I don't care about the next generation? I won't be around to know that they're angry with me. <laughs> I'll be dead. And when you ask the dead how they feel, they feel nothing. So, isn't it logical then that I would just do everything that I can if there's no moral objectivity here, if there's no ultimate point of reference? It's what I think the wisest thing, pragmatically speaking, would just do, do whatever I can to get as much as I can from everybody that I can and step on everybody I can to get it. So, when you tell me to treat the environment well and you tell me to treat my neighbor well, where is your ultimate point of reference? Tell me why I should. Why? And they'll say, well, you just should. <laughs> That's not objective morality. That's just subjective. And my feelings could differ from your diff- feelings. If, if there's no God, we are so insignificant when compared to the oceans of dead time before us and the oceans of dead time after us. So whether or not we live nobly or violently makes not one whiff of difference at all. Nothing. The Bible tells us, however, that every one of these commandments don't kill, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't commit adultery, to love your neighbor as yourself. All of those things are based upon a fact, not a feeling. And the fact is this, you are not a bag of carbon-based chemicals, but you're made in the image of God. That we are many models of God's nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. We share in his personality, his creativity, his rationality. And as such, every human being has a tremendous and viable dignity that must be respected. That's why Jesus said... When you do something to somebody, you do it to God. Surely as you've done it to the least of, me, least of these, you've done it unto me. Now you say, what's your point, Jeff? Thank you for asking. <laughs> if you truly know God, you will relate to your neighbor in such a way as to cause him to flourish. You won't step on him. You'll actually be for him. Why? Because God is for you. And as a result of God being for you, you're for your neighbor. And until people come to know God, there is no way that the posture of their life will be to treat their neighbor well. Oh, they might when it's convenient, but when it comes right down to it, man, war. My goodness, we can't even get along at football games (laughs) or baseball games. Now, this is what our leaders don't get. Your, Your relationship to God governs your relationship to everyone and everything else. And sometimes that's why we're able to do amazing things. Now, I've used this story before. Let me use it again. Until I find a better one, I'll just keep throwing it out there. The number one story still requested today from Reader's Digest is a story about the life of Edith Taylor from Walter, Massachusetts. She married a man, the love of her life. She had a lovely family. Everything was going well in the story, and then her husband was called to war. He had to go to Japan. He wrote her religiously for months and months, and then suddenly the letter stopped coming. Her 12-year-old son wanted to know why her heart was broken. Had he been killed? What had happened? And finally, out of the blue, one day she got another letter. And the letter said, no matter how I say this, it's going to break your heart, Edith. I've fallen in love with another young Japanese girl. I'm not going to be coming home after the war. Just devastated her. Story goes on to say how her son came to her and said, just because daddy doesn't love us, does that mean we don't love him anymore? Please have dad send us photos of his new wife and children as the years go by. And he did. And with every letter that came and every photo, Edith's heart was broken all over. And then in an ironic twist, 
Years and years went by. She received another, another letter from her ex-husband describing how he had contracted cancer. He had days to live. And he had the audacity to ask Edith, who lived in her own poverty with her own kids, if he could scrape enough money in Japan to buy airline tickets, if he could fly his new wife and kids to New York, and if she would raise them and take care of them and help them to stand on their own two feet. She did. She raised the children of a betrayed love, taught them to stand on their own feet, and culminated her testimony by saying this, in that dark, dreary, hellish situation, I thank God for the ray of light and hope to share some of the love of Christ in this very dismal setting. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. You're not going to change by saying, oh, I need to be more generous. And you're not going to change by your pastor preaching a 40-minute sermon to you. You ought to be more generous. (laughs) No, that's the point. He says, to give largely and liberally and not begrudgingly requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. So what do you need? A new heart. I can't give that to you. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me want to dance and sing With every single breath I breathe I will bring this offering You are my wonder You bring the wonder Today 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 with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.